So I was paying attention. I was being mindful as we came out of meditation. And um, I saw such relief. (laughs) (laughs) And I think my talk tonight is on uh, joy even in the midst of a world on fire. And I tell you that the Buddha says that there is only one way to have joy in these kinds of situations, and that is if we have uh, developed the practice of um, delighting in renunciation. Delighting in renunciation. So I know we don't want to hear too much about renunciation. Uh, uh, We just think that's for a few people and we don't know what's wrong with them. (laughs) But I have to tell you, it's, it's misunderstanding and misapplying a principle. So the Buddha says that, uh, you know, we say practice makes perfect, but he says perfect practice makes perfect. And so to make sure that we're practicing perfectly, I thought I would uh, share some of his discourses around that. Because we can talk about joy until the cows come home. But there's a difference between talking about it and actually entering into it. If I say to myself, I shall put on a happy face, then shall my countenance be changed. You see, so it takes something, uh, a commitment. It takes an action in a certain way, even when the outer situation may not seem to call for it. But that's because we think we live out here in the world. But the Buddha says, actually, we don't. We live in the mind and the heart. It informs, it colors, it gives us our perception of what is what. And so how we see it is our map of reality. How we understand it is what's real for us. How we hear it speaks to what it actually means to us. That's why, you know, five people can hear a a conversation and when they tell you what they heard, they heard five different things. Or five people can witness something, and they saw it five different ways. Surely five people can experience something, and they tell you what just happened, and you have five different versions. So which one is real? Which is reality? You know, we use these words, uh, you know, but we have to get behind the words and know exactly, I, you know, we talk about um, uh, 
reality and the nature of reality and what is what is real and but I don't know exactly what that means when people use it I, I break it down a little simpler than that it just tells me what is what what is this what is happening right here you know and we talk about seeing it as it actually is so the only way that we can see it as it actually is is without it being colored by our perception so there has to be some training on how to uh, shut down a personal perception. Otherwise, that's just my view of what's happening, of what's going on. And that's why we have so many problems in the world, because we all have different views. Uh, what are we going to do about that? I mean, it says that this is the kind of world... You know, some worlds have same mind, same body. Some have same mind, different body. Some have same body, different mind. And some have different minds, different bodies. The Buddha said, in this Saha world, beings have different minds, different bodies. So they can't even be expected to agree. But yet, we are called upon to disagree yet be agreeable. To not be disagreeable even when we disagree. He says that the ordinary, untaught man, woman, man, mankind. So don't write me any letters about it. I left, I left women out, okay. Uh, so can I understand this? He says the ordinary, untaught, run-of-the-mill. He said, but one who is taught and practiced can definitely understand this. So when we think about what is happening in the world, we think about it from uh, an egocentric space. We think about it from I'm at the center of my world, for sure. You know, and then it ripples out to whoever I love the most, being closest to me, and on and on and on and on. And he said, and that's what causes the whole trouble. He said, but there is a different way of being in the world and interacting with the world that would take care of most of that. And that's what our training is all about. And the reason that I said I like to, um, I like to give the Dharma talk and then we meditate so that we can meditate in line. And you know, when I come in, I just come in with who I am and what I'm dealing with today. And I sit there and I just try to process it. And after about 40 minutes, I'm through trying to process it for tonight. And I'm thinking it must be close to the time for that bell to ring. And I've just done my hard work. But if we approach it in the right way, we will find something that has its own quality and its own dunamis, its own power to effect and transform the moment for us. That has the power to take us out of an egocentric space 
into a, a broader, magnanimous space. And so what was the big elephant in the room for me personally just becomes one little blip on the screen of 10,000 blips. And so I can put it into perspective. It, it, it changes the structure of appearances for us. And we find by our own effort that the help that I need to succor my suffering, it's resident in me. So I'm not looking for it from you. I'm not looking for it out here because you said it can't be found out here. We have to find it within. This, this laboratory right here. So when we sit, that's what we, we're going into the laboratory and we're experimenting. I'd like to read a little passage from, I found so many good ones. You know, this is a, this is a really good book here. The Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses or middle length sayings of the Buddha. Uh, they're sort of like the, uh, you know, the, there's the Digga Nikaya, they're long, long discourses. Then there's uh, the Dhammapala, they're little short, pithy sayings. This one is not too long, not too short, it's just right, <laughs> you know. Uh, so they're, they're like three or four pages long, you know. And it can take you through a complete thought and leave you speechless at the end. You can just ponder something. Um, and the good thing about it is that they're not, um, they weren't written with our sensitivities in mind. You know, so they don't really care if they offend us. And it actually allows us to step into something that if we had our choice, we might not choose. So it says, here Ananda, an untaught, ordinary person, who has no regard for noble ones and who's unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, abides with a mind obsessed and enslaved, by identity view. And he does not understand as it actually is the escape from that arisen identity view. And when that identity view has become habitual and is uneradicated in him, it is a fetter. It binds him. It binds him up. He says, but a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their dharma, who has regard for true men and is skilled and disciplined in their dharma, does not abide with a mind obsessed and enslaved by identity view. He understands, as it actually is, the escape from the arisen identity view and identity view together with the underlying tendency towards it is abandoned in him. So that gives us one uh, basis 
for meditation, right? So when Ananda, uh, I'm sorry, when uh, Rahula, the Buddha's son, was walking behind him one morning, they're going out for alms rounds, and he was looking at the Buddha uh, from behind. He said, hmm, he's a pretty good-looking man, you know. Not only is he handsome, he's important. Not only is he important, he has all these disciples and people that follow him. He's a great man, and you know, I'm his son. And he identified with these outer characteristics, these things that were, these notions that were pleasurable and, and that spoke to their being, this being, this, his eyeness. And he said, and uh, I'm going to be just like him. And they said that the Buddha wrapped mine with mine and he turned to him and he rebuked him. And he said, and I'm going to read it so you don't think I'm making it up. And it's in Sutta number 62. Mm-hmm. Sutta number 62. And he turned to him and he said, Rahula, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, present, internal, external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. He said, only material form, blessed one, only material form. He said, material form, Rahula, and feeling, and perception, and formations. And consciousness. And then Rahula, being rebuked, said, why should I go for alms rounds uh, uh, when I've been admonished by the Buddha like this? And he, he went back and he sat down. And the venerable Sariputta saw him sitting there, and he addressed him. He said, Rahula, develop mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing. For when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. And so that evening, Rahula went back to the Buddha and he asked him, he said, Master, how is mindfulness of breathing developed so that it is of great fruit and great Benefit. Now, this is where the two come together around identity view. He said, Rahula, whatever internally belonging to oneself that is solid and clung to, that could be head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinew, bones, bone marrow, kidney, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, and he went through all of the parts of the body, even down to the contents of the stomach and feces or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. That is called the internal earth element. This right here, that's external earth element, right? It's external to me. He said, now both external earth element and internal earth element is just earth element. It should be seen 
as it actually is. And every time we see and acknowledge it as it actually is, the notion of identity view for a moment is subdued. And when it's subdued, I recognize this is not me. This is not a me. This is just flesh, bones, tissue, blood. And that's just one little part. Then it goes on, Rahula. What is the water element? The water element may be either internal or external. If I had a glass of water here, I say, what is this? You say it's a glass of water. I drink some of the water. And what is this? I don't say that this is a sack of water. I say, it's me. But he said, whatever internally is water, watery, should be seen as it actually is. So I just want to make sure that we're doing some of the things sitting in meditation that we should be doing, that we're looking in the ways that we should be looking. Otherwise, we're like just sitting like a bump on a log. And then when we get up, you know, and we go back out and we are, are uh, confronted with the vicissitudes of life, we're like, we can't handle it because we wasted our time sitting or we were practicing but not doing perfect practice, the kind that breaks the yoke, truly breaks the yoke of ignorance in the mind and in the heart, freeing the heart. And so he said, Rahula, what is the fire element? The fire element may be either internal or external. What is the internal fire element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, and clung to, that we call I, that by which one is warmed and ages and consumes, and that by which what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets completely digested, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is fire or fiery, clung to as the I, should be seen as it actually is, that this is just the fire element, and what Rahula is the air element. The air element may be either external or internal. What is the internal air element? Whatever internally is air, airy, and clung to as I. That is upgoing winds, downgoing winds, winds in the belly, winds in the bowels, winds that course through the limbs, in breath and the out breath, or whatever else internally. This area should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This is not, I am not this. This is not myself. It says, now when one sees this as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the element and makes the mind dispassionate towards the element. And then he went on to what is the space element. It may be either internal or external. What is the internal space element? Whatever belonging to oneself is space, spatial, 
and clung to, the holes of the ears, the holes in the nostrils, the door of the mouth, and that aperture whereby what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets swallowed where it collects and whereby it is excreted from below or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is space, spatial, and clung to is called the internal space element. And it is simply space element. That should be seen as it actually is. So he tells us to keep reflecting in this way until we see truly that the body that we call us is not really us in the way that we think it is. And he said, as the dispassion arises, that's uh, it. We come into a more even space to be able to not be so enamored with it, to not be so attached to it, to not think that it deserves more than any other body. And if it's only one thing and two of us have to choose who gets it, I should get it. It's a... It, it starts to take us away from, you know how a, a little child thinks uh, their mommy or their daddy is the only mommy or daddy. And we sort of feel that way about our body, about what matters. This is what matters the most, and then maybe yours somewhere down the line. <laughs> After me, then after mine, my lover, my spouse, my children, my family, my neighborhood, my community, my city, my state, my country. <coughs> it's like that. And so this is how we begin to just break that tendency. You know, somebody asked me one time, well, not just one time, every time, um, so they asked me, well, Padmawati, how do, uh, how do we get more, uh, black people to come to our sangha? You know, I mean, that's the, that's, that's usually the first question I get asked. You know, I'm like, how many black people do you know? You can't just go put a sign, a sign out that says black folks want it. You have to, you know, and so it's, it's kind of that way, you know? So we have views, we have ways of misunderstanding something, and we want to do a Jenny blink and fix it. And, but we can't fix it that way. There has to be a melting away, a merging together of something that takes time and takes effort and takes for real, for real. Like being there, just not having a good idea. I want to do right about all people. I want to have a nice, diverse sangha. I want to whatever, you know. But it's more than just a thought about wanting to have it. To actually have it, it has to actually be that. You, you get me? You understand what I mean? And so he has us start to do these exercises. That's all they are. These exercises. So when we're sitting in meditation... He says, this is the first thing you have to do before your mindfulness of breathing can be of good benefit and yield fruit. He says, first you have to 
look at the elements here that you call you and just get them back to just being elements. And in that process, you have now separated yourself really, not intellectually, but really. That's the dispassion that arises. And suddenly, I'm not having to take care of myself so much at this moment. I forget about myself. Something like that. So then he takes this a little bit further. He says, Rahula, develop your meditation like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So just as people wash clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood in water, the water is not repelled, it is not humiliated, and it is not disgusted. So too, Rahul, develop your meditation like that. And when you develop meditation like that, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts cannot invade the mind and remain. Rahula developed meditation that is like fire. For when you develop meditation that's like fire, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain, just as people burn clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood in the fire. The fire is not repelled, it is not humiliated, and it is not disgusted. And because of that, when you develop meditation, that's like the fire. Neither agreeable nor disagreeable contacts will invade your mind and remain. So he's telling us how to abandon both covetousness and grief for the world. And he says this is the first thing you have to do. This is the prelude to the the practice. So when I sit with my issues, sit with my problem, sit with my anger, I sit with my... He said, no, no, you have to set that aside. When you sit, part of the sitting is for however long I'm going to sit, I'm setting all of that aside, both covetous and grief for the world. So here we are in the world, and yet we carve out this space where we set aside what makes us happy in the world and what brings us sorrow. Now we have to figure out how to do that. It starts with the decision to do it. Everything starts with a decision. Even a decision to not make a decision is a decision. So there is a a willfulness and a willingness to do this. When I sit, I'm going to just, whatever is happening in my life, 
it'll be there in 30 minutes when I get up. And I can pick it back up then and try to figure out what to do about it. But for now, I am training the mind to not be attached to Paniwadi and her issues and what's important to her and what she wants to do and what she doesn't like. None of that. I'm just training myself for a few minutes every day to just set that notion aside. So he said that mind is chief. Mind made, are we? Whatever we think and ponder on becomes the inclination of the mind. So everything that we see happening out in the world is the, is the result of the inclining of someone's mind habitually towards certain thoughts. That's it. Just kill four people. 24 people, 58 people, all of them. It's the mind continually leaning towards something. If he leaves me, I'll just kill myself, and I'll kill the children because I can't make it without him. Yes, you didn't come into this world for him joined at the hip. You, you can make it, but it depends on how we train the mind. And if we train the mind well, the mind becomes a support to the awakened heart. So when the Buddha talks about cheetah, he's like not really like talking about the intellectual and conceptualizing mind, but he's talking about the mind of the heart, that part that carries the awakened, our awakened nature. And he says, it's there. He said, if it wasn't there, I wouldn't even tell y'all to do this because there'd be no way to produce something if you didn't have the ingredients. How am I going to bake a cake and I don't have flour, sugar, leaven? No, no way to bake a cake. He says, in the same way, because you do have it, it's just obscured. It's just covered over. I tell you these things and I point you to them so that you can peel back the layers and be free to where you do no harm to yourself <laughs> and you do no harm to others. To that space that we recognize that we don't end at the skin, every one of us in here knows that. All you got to do is get on a, a small elevator with strangers. <laughs> and you feel like they've invaded your space. They're not touching you. But there's a part of you that extends out beyond just what the eye can see. So the Buddha says we have these faculties. And some of them are useful for interacting with the world. But they're not that reliable. Now which faculties? He said the eye faculty. The ear faculty. You know, the tongue and the feeling tactile faculty. Said so the thinking faculty. It says whatever we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or think, those. That's all the ones we know about. But he says that there are others that will be activated when we start 
to incline the mind in the right way. And that they can be cultivated and developed. And then we will find ourselves useful for every good thing in this world. So we have all these meets, you know, about how to get rid of this in the world, and how to overcome that, and how to change this. And, and he says, no, you, you know, this is not a group on. <laughs> he says, we have to do this individually, each one transforming oneself. Then when we all come together, we have a, you know, we all come together and we're of one mind, although we have different bodies. Now, it's a little longer process than just like writing a law. But you see, writing a law doesn't enforce a law. People enforce. And if that one's mind is not cultivated and inclined, leaning in a certain way, that law won't be enforced. And maybe something else that is not beneficial or useful or helpful or compassionate or fair or just is enforced. Because the one determines how he will relate to the law, the intention of it for him, not what's written on a piece of paper. And so laws serve some purpose, but he talks to us about not becoming slaves to a law because it won't be long before we realize that something more is needed. I look at our um, homeland security and anti-terrorism laws, and we're so bound up in a prison now. If you ask me, are we any safer now that we have all of this stuff? No. Because that's a way but it's not the most perfect way. Because people do these things. So there needs to be a transformation in the heart and the mind of people. So he says that when we develop meditation like this, starting by setting aside both covetousness and grief for the world. We put ourselves in a neutral space where we're not grasping around anything. We're not demanding anything. We're not uh, requiring that things have to be our way. We're not, we're just here. And that there is something about being in this space 
that reconnects us in our totality to the whole universe. There's an expansiveness that comes. That knowing that when you walk in the room, that you, you're not a, a sack of ident- identity, but when you walk into that room, you fill that whole space. Or when you step in that elevator. (laughs) And so what happens when you walk into the room? You know, some people tell me, you know, like, I don't feel safe in certain environments. Well, Abu says, well, I hate to tell you this, but there's no safety to be found anywhere. That's the first thing you got to come to grips with. No safety to be found anywhere. So when I step into a room, I'm not necessarily coming there and expecting you to make me feel safe. I'm coming to make you feel safe. (laughs) Because I know what I am. Do you know what you are? Somebody says, well, you know, like, I just want to be loved and, and... People, they don't love me. But, you know, the thing is, may not love you. So you better have enough love for yourself. Because who you're looking for love from, you just may not get it. But when you have enough for yourself, you know, and you just keep filling that cup, with love for yourself, ultimately, it overflows. And when it overflows, you naturally love others. You don't have to, like, be trying to love somebody. You know, the love just overflows. It just spills over. It just covers. It covers everybody. Those that like you and those that don't. So if someone comes and says, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't like her. Well, what's that got to do with me? It doesn't have anything to do with me. That's, I have a, a different choice. I mean, it's easy to love people that love you, but can you love those that don't? I mean, like, if we say that we want to cultivate, this is, this is the path leading. He, the Buddha calls it the path leading upward. I like that. You know, because we can make things sound so pragmatic, so rational, so down to earth, so common, so ordinary. I got all the ordinary stuff, all the common stuff I want, from common sense on. I'm looking for something on this path that was more than that. How about you? More than that. That's what drew me. Looking for something more than what's common, more than what's ordinary. And in searching for that, seeking it out, finding it, finding my own liberation. Nobody to set you free but you yourself. And every time, you know, it's like... uh, this is grown-up work. It's like grown-up work. And we're getting a really good dose of what it can be to, to be in a high position or to be an adult and be infantile. Um, if, if, we, if we forgot what that was like, we're getting a daily dose of 
So don't let it be said about you and me. Don't let it, you know, when I look, I want to respond in a manner that is mature, that represents some mastery. Oh, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But when I grew up, you put away childish things. It doesn't mean you're not childlike in the sense of being homeless. Because I know some vicious children, though. And, and to, but it, it changes what is necessary, what you require from others to be in the world. And what you find is that you start being like the thermostat that sets the temperature in the room rather than the barometer that simply measures the pressure. This kind of mastery was what the Buddha was talking about. And the kind of Dharma that he gave us is that which leads to that kind of mastery. And he said that as you start to recognize this mastery being displayed in one, the understanding really being there, then a certain kind of joy begins to arise. And it is this joy of uh, accomplishment. It's a joy that the world didn't give you, so the world can't take it from you. Along with this joy is, uh, comes a brightness that allows you to see clearly and to see far. And when a situation arises, you can understand not what that is, but how that comes about. So the confusion is gone. The, like, why is this happening? It's not, that's not there in the mind. We understand clearly why it's happening. And if we can harness our emotions so that they're not running all over the place, then we have an opportunity to channel, to direct that energy towards some meaningful resolution. But if I'm too owie, like, you can't say anything, you hurt my feelings, you know. If we're, if we're still in that place, you know, and there's so many of us that want to go out and we want to help make the world a better place. We want to get involved. We want to do something. But we haven't had our muscles exercised by reason of use. We need to sit until we come to that empty space. I named our, our center Heartwood because uh, when... I was just uh, enthralled by this, uh, these trees that I, I saw when I first started going to, to India. And they're so beautiful. Uh, they're like vines, thick vines. And I thought the vines were all, you know, all around the trunk of the tree. But one day when I was getting really close to them, I said, don't get too close because snakes are in there. I said, in where? He said, they're in the tree. I'm like, no, the tree is in the tree. You know, I mean, you know, you slice the tree, the tree is solid, the, the trunk. They said, no, it's not, it's hollow. And when I went over to see these, I mean, these are huge trees, 
huge trees with branches that just extend. But they're hollow inside. And it was such a metaphor. It was suddenly, it was an epiphany. I had an aha moment about something that the Buddha was talking about, about anatta, this non-self. That the closer we get to what's real, the less there is an individuated I to be found. And the ones who would be free recognize this. And the ones who would be bound cleave more tightly to the I. And so it's an experiment we embark upon. An experiment of releasing our notion about the necessity for us to be at the center of our world. At the center of the universe. Such a childish thought. And yet that's how we live and move and have our being. So we all agree about tonight, yeah, yeah. You know, I I get all of this. But what happens when we step out of this room? We just go back to our conventional things and we go back to our conventional ways of looking at things. That's why he said, meditate. That's my advice to you, meditate. That's my advice to you, meditate. That's my advice to you. Go find the root of a tree. Uh, you know, the thing about it is, like, like where we live in this day and time, just about every tree is owned by somebody, even if it's the government. So when we come together, you know, we have to create places where we can do this. But do it, we must. This joy that begins to arise from just that little bit of time of laying it all down. I give up my foolish pride, all the hurt I feel inside. I give up my memories, my cravings. I, for this 30 minutes, that thing that somebody said about you, you know, here's the thing about getting known, is 100 people can say something nice about you, and one person say something that's not, and you're just totally fixated on that, that one person's assessment of you. Forget the other 100, that one. It'll just be in your mind. I'm a good person, I am. I would, but we have to practice undoing that way of being in the world. And I tell you when we do. First it starts with a, a contentment inside. Not even expected 
folk to like me. So if some do, whoopee, I'm ahead of the game. You know, not even needing it. It becomes a weight and a burden. Because praise comes with blame. They, they run in pairs. Loss and gain run in pairs. Pleasure and pain run in pairs. Fame and shame run in pairs. These eight worldly wins. And the Buddha said it's only one way to overcome these eight worldly wins and not lose your mind. He said disentangle from the whole thing. It doesn't mean that you can't have things. It just means that things won't have you. It doesn't mean you can't be with someone. Just be able to be without them as well. And if not, see the craving. I bury my children every day. I'm real vivid with it too now. I separate from them every day. I haven't seen my son and my eight grandchildren. I don't know. It's been years. Because always, Ma, when are you going to come and see us? I'm coming soon. You know? But I have my work that I have to do. But in my mind's eye, I see them all the time. And they say, oh, we know, Ma. It's okay. You know? Or if you pick up my phone, I have Marco Polo. My daughter said, Mom, 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 it's your daughter, Mom. And then I'll send her a little thing back. I say, me too. You know? And then she's so happy. But every day, because I know that's my sticking point, you see? Since the one who loses his life in this way finds freedom. Since suffering, suffering comes, suffering is born from those who are dear. Said, and this is the truth. So some of this is about, uh, you know, what's that movie? Dun 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 dun. dun. Uh, Mission Impossible. Uh, this is, you know, your assignment if you choose to take it. See, we got a choice if you choose to take it. And so we just have to ask ourselves, do we choose? If not, don't be faking it. Give your seat to somebody who's really choosing to wake up. And we'll find that there's no danger in waking up. In fact, the very things we wanted to accomplish, we'll be able to easily accomplish. And then life will take on a different appearance for us. We will not be moved by the things that are pleasurable. And we will not be overcome by the things that are not. 
This is the cooling that the Buddha talked about. I think we, you know, use some words that, that we interpret a little different. So when he talks about being aloof, you know, uh, being detached, it's not the kind of aloofness and detachment I've seen in some circles. They've misunderstood, misapplied. The Buddha would say it all the time. He'd say to a disciple, when did you ever hear me teach this that way? And he'd go to explain the, the fine points and how to take the teaching and make it your own, make it a, a living, something that is alive and living, how to embody it. The Buddha himself underwent many austerities, and he said what he realized is that pain is not gain. <laughs> and he talked in Sutta number 36 about all the things he did. You know, I practiced cutting off food, and I got down to where I was eating one grain of rice a day. And I practiced a pranayama, a breathless meditation, stopping the breath, and I, and he talked about all these different things, and he said, um, he suffered painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exhaustion. And he started wondering, like, is it, could, could there be another path <laughs> to enlightenment? And he said, and I considered, I recall that when my father, the Sakyan, was occupied, I was sitting in the cool shade of the rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures. I mean, sort of like in a revelry. You know, wasn't, eyes weren't really fixed on anything. Wasn't listening to anything. It was just sort of just there. He had one of those moments. He said, secluded from sensual pleasures, information that I gained through looking, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. Secluded from unwholesome mental states. I wasn't hating on anybody. I didn't want something that belonged to somebody. I wasn't upset because I didn't have something. Or secluded from unwholesome mental states. I entered upon and abided in the first jhana accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure that's simply born of seclusion, of stepping away. Stepping away from the vicissitudes of life. What a wonderful invitation. What an easy practice. We even make that hard. What an easy practice. And he said, could this be the path to enlightenment? Then following on that m memory came the realization, yes, this indeed is the way. And I thought, why am I afraid of the pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures of this world and unwholesome mental states? And I thought, I am not afraid of such pleasure. And he began this practice. 
And he said that it's so easy for us to get into it. First, we agree to set aside. What? What's the first thing we set aside? Our covetousness, right? Our covetousness and grief for the for the world. Fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, forty-five minutes, hour, whatever. I set that aside, you know. So what happens when you try to set something aside? That's the thing that I keeps coming up, right? Because whatever you think on or ponder on, that's going to be what's in the mind. Okay, that's how the mind works. Uh, so every time that wants to come up, I say, yeah, I know what she did, and I'm going to deal with it, but not right now. I'm going, uh, you know, I'm going to handle that tomorrow. You know, I, I she, he did something. I can't let it go. I can't let it go. That needs, you know, I, it, it needs. Uh, I need justice. I, I can't let it go, but I'll pick it up in 30 minutes. You know, if you can just, like the kid is saying, Mommy, Mommy, Mom. You ever go to the store and uh, the little kid in the line and they put all the candy right there at the checkout and, you know, and the kid wants it and that mother is so used to that child and he's just yanking and I want it, I want it, I want it, mommy, mommy. And uh, she, she's like, she just tuned it right out. I'm like, would you deal with him? You know, she, she just tuned it right out. I'm sitting over here, let me just take him home one day. I'm, I'm, a good, I'm good at training children. One day is all I need, you know. And, uh, but she's that way. She's, she has set that aside. So we get better at setting it aside once we know what we're doing, you know. Sometimes we're, like, confused. We don't know what we're doing. But once we know what we're doing, so it's clearing the space and sitting. And he said, and then take your attention to the breath. He said, just doing this mindfulness of in and out breathing meets all the requirements for the four foundations. So external Air, internal air. He said, like a sawyer saws a log, and this is why I really like to do it, the teaching before the meditation. Like a sawyer saws a log, and although he saws backwards and forwards, his eye never leaves the place where the teeth of the blade meet the log. So he saws but he keeps his eye in one spot. He says, let your mindfulness of breathing be like that. So where is that spot where you move from external air to internal air? Find that spot. And when you found it, let your attention rest right there. That's what a applied thought is. He said, like a gatekeeper, although people come from afar, he's not looking down there. Once they come into the city, he doesn't care where they go. His job is to note when they step from outside the city to inside the gate. That's his job. That's your focus. That's your total job at that moment. 
And so we take our attention to that one spot where we detect we're moving from external wind to internal wind. And on the exhale, the internal wind becomes external wind. Now we think, oh, but these distracting thoughts, these distracting thoughts. But here's the thing, it's not so much that thoughts distract you. It's that you get bored with this and the mind starts looking for something else to focus on. But if you thought of this, like like how you do when you want to be with your significant other. I mean, you know, just slipping away for a few minutes or for an hour or for a day. And you could be at a table and this conversation's going all around, but you, you, I only have eyes for you. I'm only interested in what you're talking about. You know, we mono a mono, right? That's it. And that is what you're giving to it. That's the energy that you give to it. So it's, it's arousing the energy to be right here, right now, just with this. It's so sweet. Did you all see me when I came out of meditation tonight? <sighs> yeah, because I come back to this world. But when I come back, I can handle this world after having been there, touching that. It's like an infinite wellspring. And that's what he discovered. And that's what he pointed us to. So if you didn't get it this way, buy the book. (laughs) There's about 150-some discourses of the Buddha in here. And 98% of them just keep repeating this. It just keeps repeating this. It just keeps taking us back to this. And he said that that is the beginning of the path to enlightenment because it will break the first fetter, which is identity view. So you don't cease to be you. I mean, but your idea of who you are becomes different. And your idea of who others are becomes different. And that notion that you're so separate becomes different. The other becomes like your mirror image. And you know them even as you know yourself. And you find where we're more alike than where we're different. So the structure of appearances changes. You see something different. You understand it differently. And a great contentment arises in you. A great optimism. A great clarity. Even when something has to be handled. Even when something has to be fixed. And because of this Brilliance, he said, when you go in, there's a brilliance, a luminosity.
that begins to emerge, that shines on your whole path, your whole world. It shines on everything you think about, everything you see. And you start to not be so narrowly confined to views. He said the the thing that we're the most attached to is our view. It's our view. So how do you get unstuck from your view? I mean, my view is my view. But just through this process, our view begins to expand. And then I can hear something that someone else is saying that I disagreed with. And after I hear it, I might still disagree, but I'm not fighting mad. I'm not so anxious that i got to get my point across and you have to agree with me. Like, that's another way to look at it. You know? Maybe you have a, sometimes you have one view and somebody else have another, and I'm almost through. Yes, I am. Yeah, uh, and somebody else has a different view, but then after you heard some of theirs, like you actually agree with that. But you can't say that you agree with that now because you're so busy defending your other view, although that little part is true, you just won't dare say it. You know, so sometimes when I'm talking about things, I get emails and say, Paniwadi, you know, like what you said is true, but you shouldn't say that in front of certain people. I'm like, why not? It's the truth. He said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, now's not the time to talk about that. Yes, if not now, when we're not agreeing, when? Now is the time. But we can't have a dog in the fight. So I say to you tonight, if you're unhappy, if you're feeling discouraged like there's no hope in the world, if you feel that nothing can be done, or if you feel that it takes radical, destructive measures, the Buddha said, drop in. Just drop in to the breath, constantly changing. No two breaths are the same. Actually, I'm breathing your breath right now. It's not mine. It's not yours. And gradually, to the extent that we give ourselves to this, it will give us our freedom. I am able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. I am able, more than able, to handle anything that comes my way. I am able, more than able, to do much more than I could even dream. I am able, I'm more than able, to be just what I really want to be. Do you know that about yourself? That's where our strength comes from, what we know about ourselves. Fill yourselves with the Dharma, and you will be vast and infinite. Yeah. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.